When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I heard today, Adam, that we have a really special guest. Who are we, we talking do. to today? Um, this is Lisa Ahmet. Um, she's been the principal of the Hebrew school where I teach on Sundays for, I want to say five years, but honestly, I've lost track. Um, yeah, but we, we got to know each other really well in that time. And she is also a grad student, which makes her belong on this podcast and you'll you'll hear there's well i'm actually a little bit impatient to get her to tell it so i'm just gonna cut that short lisa welcome Welcome, well thank you adam and thank you andrew for having me on your podcast i'm very excited to be part of it um just a little bit about myself this is actually adam and my sixth year we actually both started the same year i started a few months before he came on yeah, this Have is I going been into there the whole time. <laughs> yes. Good God, six years. No, yes, it's, we've it's amazing. Many, we've gone through many different Adam stages. <laughs> I remember your knitting stage. Your oh, I still have the knitting stage. stage. Yeah, but I used I used to I used to occasionally knit in the classroom, like when the students were doing their private work. And is that a mindfulness strategy for you? Because I think to the listeners, they should know Adam is always doing some kind of knitting project as we're discussing with uh, interviewees. People always ask this question. Is it mindfulness? Is it restful? Is it meditative? It, no, it's fidgeting with evidence. Ah. <laughs> it's, I'm going to fidget anyway. So at least I might as well be able to, after like five months of fidgeting, be able to give someone a scarf. Yeah, you want to show that's what it for is. That. I understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Lisa, <laughs> I know just hearing yeah, from Adam, yeah. he's well, so I feel like I've known Lisa for so long because Adam has always talked up all of the work she's done with the Hebrew school. But I know that you wear so many chef's hats. Like you're you're moving from one dish to the next dish. Um, so, you know, what else, you know, I guess walk us through a typical day in Lisa's shoes. Um, well, oh, yes. Okay. So first of all, I'm a Hebrew school principal. Uh, my school runs Sunday and on Thursdays. It's considered basically under the after school or supplementary school model. It um, also has many different layers to it. It has early childhood programs, early childhood family programs, as youth programs, as teen programs. It has, um, it has family programs. And so we are always busy at the temple doing something for someone. Um, Adam has also done a lot of programs with us as far as cooking, 
um, Jewish cooking around the world and a little bit of history about it, Yiddish club. So we do all sorts of things because we want to have an array. A big focus for us is multicultural and multi-access um, to Judaism. So that's the Hebrew school uh, program that I run. And then I also am a 911 operator and dispatcher for the Nassau County Police Department. Um, I roughly am there about two to three nights a week, uh, unless it's like a busy season, then sometimes I do overtime. I wasn't really quite sure uh, what I would think of it. I started a little over two years ago, but I really, really love it because I'm helping people. And that's always been like a big goal of mine is that um, whatever I do, I want to make a positive impact on the world. And I hope that in both of those things, I'm doing that. Then, uh, let me see, was it um, three years ago? Three years ago, I began the journey to go back to grad school. It had been a challenge before that because it was just so expensive and I was never able to afford it. Like I tried going to Dowling for a year. I did meet my best friend Lizette there. So I, I did get one really great thing and I got, um, I got two credits and a lot of debt. And so I was like, oh boy, this isn't going to work. I I, you know, for how much it cost, you know, and what it was going to do, you know, like I didn't need it for what I was already doing. Uh, I, I had to drop out and it was devastating that it wasn't so accessible and that, you know, getting an education is so expensive. And then a little over three years ago, I got this email from Gratz College that they had funding. Then I looked into it. It was affordable on top of the fact that they had scholarships. And they were so personable when I called and it was an easy, easy entry, you know, like application, people helped you along the way. So I started three years ago. Um, I went on the fast track. I was just so passionate and got so excited about each of the classes that I actually graduated within two years, which sometimes it takes longer. But I just, in the summer, I would take like three or four classes and, I, you know, every teacher there was just like incredible. So um so i did that so now i i don't know i think sometimes i think i'm slightly <laughs> crazy because as i knew i was ending my one program a friend of mine at Graz said oh i'm interested in the doctoral program and i said oh well you should look into it oh i don't know if i want to and i said let's just go in the office and we were there for the summer institute so then she's finding out about it and i was like wait i could do this program too <laughs> So the only downside is I definitely went from graduating early in December to going straight into uh, the doctoral program this January 2020, which everybody know that they knows or feels, I would think that 2020 is not the ideal year to start anything because it's been such an upheaval. But I began 2020 in the doctoral program along with everything else that came with the changes of 2020. Yeah. Um, so those are all, I guess, the professional and grad school work that I do. Yeah. And exciting that you're, when I found out that Lisa went to grads, I'm like, oh my goodness, finally, I have someone to talk to about Rebecca Gratz and her um, Hebrew <laughs> benevolent society that she created for women in the 17, late 1700s. And I think it's a very intimate I mean, maybe for those listening who don't know what Gratz is as a college, like what is the um, 
makeup look like of the college? Because it's pretty small, right? It is. It's it's small. It's a small building, but you go in there and you you know there's just it's very welcoming and the teachers are just like uh, incredible, like cream of the crop teachers. You know, I I I take you know like the dean of the school and the president of the school. They get a lot of people as adjunct professors that are at um, other really great uh, prestigious schools or have a really great background in the field. And you know, I remember my first teacher. He uh, he actually went to Harvard. And he he's a he taught all the like the Jewish studies classes and they were so enlightening. He was just so incredible. And I and I was like, oh, he's the best teacher. And then I got another teacher. He's the best teacher. And that it's like so so intimate and like you don't feel like you're left behind. Like the teacher knows who you are. If you need anything, they're very accessible. And that's really been the great thing. Is it is it's kind of like a really it's like a community you feel like you're part of a community and it's very historic with its Jewish University heritage right mm -hmm. and what's really neat is I did want to bring this up is that you know just like Rebecca Gratz and how like they have such an eye on like being being effective in the community and and making a difference in the world they've added another program this year which is a master's in human rights Oh, that's really cool. That is cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I have a quick little bit of of uh, a historical tidbit. And Andrew, you can you can speak to this if you want. <laughs> I have been unreliably informed that the character Rebecca from Ivanhoe is based on Rebecca Gratz. That's true. But yeah, I've also heard um, that it's just a rumor that people just really want it to be that way because <clears throat> it sounds really cool. No, no. Um. Unless the romantic scholars come after me. From everything I remember reading, <laughs> Sir Walter Scott had a letter exchange with Rebecca Gratz. And that's why he chose the name Rebecca, was because of their letter friendship. Wow. So there was a, there was a bond there that was formed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it speaks to... Um, what Lisa's saying of this community that she's a part of at Gratz College, that Philly really does have this more, I always call it like the small town city where it's walkable, it's like Boston, but everywhere you go in the neighborhoods, because every neighborhood has a very different type of vibe to it, you get swept up into conversations with people. And like, I remember in Old City, so you could do this and do a walking tour right now if you're in the Philly area. But I think what is the the oldest synagogue? They have a new building now, but it's still there in Old City. And I'm pretty sure that was the synagogue that the Gratz is, because Rebecca has a brother who I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, but that they had joined this synagogue in the revolutionary period. And it's still there as an operating synagogue. I mean, the building is um you know has been uh, demolished i think over the years but yeah so the history of the gratz family is alive and well in philly and i think as a city it's so interesting because all of their those landmarks that they were a part of are also nestled in with benjamin franklin's house or um 
uh, Independence Hall. And I, it really goes to show that there was this Quaker heritage mixed with a growing Jewish population in Philadelphia, especially on South Street um, in the 1800s. And yeah, it's, I don't want to say it's a melting pot city, but it does have a different type of call to action and activism. I feel like activism is at the heart of the city and you're able to contain it in a way that you just can't in New York City. It's right. It always <laughs> evades you whenever you're in New York City. It's there's a lot of energy, but it's tough to sometimes contain the city. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> but which by the way, I haven't yeah. been to the city since 2020. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't remember which city you're talking about, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think New York City until 2021. I really, it's, I've had no reason to go to the city. And then I also am like, oh, do I want to go to the city right now? You know? Yeah. A lot yeah. of people in the city. <laughs> yeah, so. And I mean, there's, I know who um, live in Manhattan. When I have conversations with them, it sounds very similar to th all the activities that we're doing out in the suburbs, which is the grocery shopping experience. Am I maybe going to go pick up a book at a bookstore? Like I'm gonna go walking mm -hmm. outside on Riverside Drive. Like very activities that have um, transcended outside the city as well. Like I feel like we are really all a part of a similar type of excursion right now. Unless, you know, you're an essential worker, then of course, you know, you you have to take the subway or maybe your job is with the MTA, right? And then that gets to access issues and, you know, how this pandemic, I keep thinking about, it's like we're on the Titanic. And I know I'm not the first person to use this metaphor, but like sometimes I really feel like you can see the layers of there's the people at the top of the boat who, you know, have to put their life, they see exactly what's coming but then you have the people at the bottom level and they're getting the water first and then it just keeps rising. And I always remember that scene in Titanic where there's that guy who is so interested in his British tea that he's like, I don't need the life jacket, but thanks a lot for this. This is a nice gesture of your of you to uh, give me a life jacket. And you know, I think we've seen there are those who don't wanna live reality right now and they don't have to necessarily in this current moment. So, yeah, I, mean, I feel like I'm going far off topic, but um, maybe- 2020 has definitely brought a lot of things to light. Yeah, yeah, and well, maybe that's a good segue to talk about um, all of the programming that you are a part of with the Hebrew school and how that transition has been in this virtual age. Right. So what happened is um, we were still having in-person classes. We actually had a Purim carnival um, where people came in and we had a bouncy house in the very beginning of March as things were happening. And we kept watching as things progressed. The way, the, the, the cheat sheet that a Hebrew school has is that we follow our public school. So I'm in Glen Cove, we follow the Glen Cove public school. So if the Glen Cove public school closes down, we close in general, like for a snow day, for um, what else? Uh, it, 
for vacations. A lot of our vacations mirror when they have vacation. So when they closed down because they had some bus drivers who had been tested positive for COVID, we closed. And then from that point on, we just transitioned to online. And honestly, I didn't really know what to expect. I know that our team is like amazing. The teachers on the team just really put like 110%. I know that's cliche to say 110% because it's like, you know, there's no extra 10%. <laughs> and then you put 200% and then 300%. But, you know, they put their all into things. And we didn't, I didn't really know what to expect because my teachers range in such different philosophies of teaching and methodologies of teaching. And they all went on to their online spots. And I went in and I saw their, you know, the different approaches and they still had a lot of their personality and character mm -hmm. in, in the way that they delivered their online program. And I was really impressed. We got a lot of compliments. Our vice president of education, who's a parent volunteer, but on our temple board, the way it works is uh, anybody who you know, each department has a vice president. The vice president of education works with the educational director mm -hmm. as a team, and they have a board spot for the temple. Okay. So he's public school principal in Manhasset, and he came from the city originally, um, from a city public school, and now he's um, out here. He's just incredible, and he's such an advocate. And when we transitioned online, he actually told our board that he thought that we transitioned beautifully, that he saw us transition effortlessly in comparison to some other schools, possibly, you know, that, um, that he was just very impressed, basically. And that was really great for the board to hear it because the board doesn't necessarily see, doesn't attend the classes. And to have the support of somebody who is such a professional, I mean, he's, he's incredible. Then... Well, so one thing I want to um, make note of is that we, um, through that process, right, from March through, I guess, May, uh, we were meeting just about weekly, all of the teachers, right, to check in, to trade notes, to uh, trade jokes, to trade all sorts, to just to talk. And, and the it's a sort of joke like, like you imagine uh saying like okay now in addition to all of your responsibilities as a teacher you have to have a, a weekly staff meeting that's going to last for three hours but basically what happened was every every weekend at you know six or so p.m we would just get together and talk for ages and it really did help because we were all getting used to not seeing people not mm -hmm. hugging people whatever it was that we missed we would come to miss the most about yeah. um, uh, life before the virus. Yeah. And it was a really important part of the transition that I don't want to gloss over mm -hmm. that, that, when, we, um, that when, when we were doing our thing um, in our classrooms and transitioning to this new version of reality, we felt very much supported by our fellows because we were in frequent contact with them. Yeah, and, and social engagement we, is so important yeah. for your health, your mental health. And I mean, you and Lisa are really speaking to, um, like when you said that that principal um, 
said how effortlessly you did this virtual transition, I think it's just how transparent all of you, even as teachers, like what Adam's saying, you all were in conversation. And I know those who are educators, the it seems like the issues and the tensions have come up when there has been no communication amongst the faculty and right. no plan. Like there's still school districts that I know of in New Jersey and Long Island that they're still uh, flipping around. Are you going to be fully virtual or are you going to come in three days a week? And then they're like, well, so the teachers who have to come in person, you also need to plan now for the virtual students. So it's like they're doing these double lesson plans and yeah. that's not comfortable for anyone for your state yeah, and of it's mind. Just, the, the, other, the, thing, the thing to remember is that it's just expected of us, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, my, my brother, my older brother is, is in computers. And so it's not, I mean, may, maybe he'll, maybe he'll uh, send us irate uh, letters next week and he'll say it's actually a terrible transition but it seems to me not that difficult to transition for him because um because he's just he's just moving from his desk in his office to his home um but there's a lot to do when you're an educator right uh not least i mean this year my class uh is divided between those who are going into school um, who the other teacher teaches and those who are still on Zoom whom I teach, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, I mean, and all of this was just expected of Lisa and all, and yeah. to a lesser extent, just expected of the rest of us, right? It's not like Lisa has a master's degree in running classes virtually and running classes um, during a pandemic and sanitizing classrooms and all of the other sort of magnificently long list of things that you have to do yeah because are you uh, doing anything time well, i think you you're even oh. hang on i think i think lisa's even selling herself short because in addition to uh, with all the sorry with all of the things that you've listed that you've been up to lately you're still selling yourself short because there's there are things that you've taken on since the pandemic that you haven't mentioned and it's okay that you haven't mentioned them but i'm I'm going to emphasize that um, there's there's additional programming since the pandemic. It's not just trying to do the same thing that we've always done. It's trying to trying to create the same effect that we've always created. The effect of having a community, and that in this case has meant additional programming, not just trying to maintain the original programming. But I think it's also yeah. important. Is anything happening in person? Just those listening, because I think. If you have to, if you're doing a hybrid model, that would matter to discuss. Like, is anything happening in a hybrid form, or is everything fully virtual? For it's, us, it's either fully virtual or for fully in person. Oh, but like we, we don't we don't have people skyping, zooming in, or skyping into a classroom that's meeting in person. So we either have the. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, we either have the, the students um, coming into a uh, online class, ultra sanitized classroom, or an online class. Yeah, well, okay. it's actually not even an ultra sanitized classroom yet, which it will be, of course, when they come in. I right. said, I mean, we're going ahead. I, so we did have the transition to online school, 
um, when the pandemic hit, it was only online. And we did increase programs and we increased our, our teachers meetings um, because I felt like we needed to be each, with each other as a support system. And research just shows, I mean, this is just using research as evidence and that's what people in masters and doctoral programs like, is that when people work together as a team and communicate and have multi layers of connectivity, such as personal relationships and understanding each other and open communication and having regular meetings, you're more successful. And what I was getting when at the onset of COVID and the transition was a lot of, you know, the, the teachers, most of the teachers were really worried about their income. Like, does this mean that the Hebrew school is closing? Am I going to lose money if we go, even if we're going online, does that mean I get paid less? You know, even though it was a part-time job for many of them, it's still part of their income that they rely on. And so I had a lot of that coming my way. And I told them, as long as we successfully show that we're transitioned online and we, we open access to the students, I said, we will be good. You know, I spoke to the board. My rabbi is an incredible advocate and the board, um, our vice president of education, the rabbi and um, our president, you know, really were dedicated to making sure that, you know, the Hebrew school was supported in all the different ways that it needed to be. When we transitioned online, we did add a lot of programs because we wanted to have more opportunities for them to get together. And we also didn't want to, take away any of the socialization or the opportunities for kids to be kids. And we also wanted to open up things for adults to have access as well. So for example, a typical Sunday morning for us prior to COVID is, this is such a prior COVID story, is like we'd have breakfast together in the same room and we'd sit at the same table with people and we didn't have masks on. Like such a crazy world, right? We like hugged each other, hello. You know, some people, remember the close talker people, you know, like people who would talk really close to people. Like we had all sorts of things like that that we don't have anymore, right? So, um, We'd have breakfast. They had time to socialize. The whole idea was for parents to be able to sit and talk to other parents and kids would bring games and hang out and run around the ballroom. So we had that built in that the first half an hour had breakfast and then I did some announcements and welcoming. And then they'd go to their classes for two hours. So as soon as we transitioned, oh, and, um, and then on Thursdays, they have um, an hour and a half of classes, and then they ended with a tefillah, which is like a prayer session with Rabbi Shabbos, who has like a guitar, and he does songs, and he does the prayers through songs, which most prayers are songs. So. Wait, his last name is Shabbos? No. No, so he... he oh, okay. named, I was like, wait. <laughs> That's Albert. his superhero name. Yeah, oh, oh, wow. I love this. So his name is Josh Alpert, but... And he's he's an orth, he's an Orthodox rabbi, but he has a rock band called White Shabbos, and so oh, um, oh I love it. We call him Rabbi Shabbos. Oh, and for those am- listening, Shabbos means Sabbath, <laughs> just so they yeah. they get the pun. Okay. Yeah. So he so on so the way we kept that model is that when we transitioned online Sunday mornings they still had the breakfast time with me on Zoom. And kids would come and families would come and have breakfast. And the kids 
you know, I first welcomed them and then I said, okay, you can hijack the screen because they were going into other classes where like everything was like, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't be a kid on Zoom, you know, so it was their chance to like, we played Pictionary on Zoom and they, and I, and I always said, okay, you can hijack the screen now, you know, and they took turns and it was awesome. And then they had their, they went to their classes on Zoom. I went and visited all the classes. Um, the teachers were great by sending out things in advance and they did art projects and they did songs. It was amazing. Then on Thursdays, they had their classes and then they still ended with tefillah with um, the prayer session with Rabbi Shabbos on guitar. And so it still kept its original timing. So it, it, it gave them still that structure that they had before for their Hebrew school. So it didn't get interrupted. But then exactly like Adam had spoke to, the staff had more meetings. Also, we set up a mentoring program because what I did is I called every family and I caught up on where they were at and how they were doing. I did that a few times throughout that school year in the summer. And some people didn't send their kids online because they were just, it was too much going on. And so we also opened up a mentoring program where there were teenagers who signed up to do, to kind of have like a play date or a hangout session on Zoom with a kid who needed it um, for any reason. Like maybe they didn't have a lot of friends. Like it was, it's really sad. Like there was stories of some kids who were in third grade who were just starting to like, bond friendships with people on the bus and then it collapsed and they didn't have that bond and have that person that they could kind of hang out with. There was one girl who's like, I just want somebody to do girl talk with, you know, like talk about like nails and then, you know, and that was really cute. And then we had another one who like really wanted to play the guitar. So we, we set them up with different teens and they would spend about a half an hour, once or twice a week, whatever they set up. Then we also added youth programs for for the kids, like uh, third, like like first and second graders, like broken up into different grades. And one was like a scavenger hunt. One was a cooking program. They made brownies, you know. So there was these programs that were done on Sunday night or on a Tuesday night that they could zoom in onto. Uh, Adam took over and did a Yiddish club for kids and then for adults, and that was really neat. And that was like almost like a book club meets, you know, uh, Yiddish, you know. Kind of a, a guided book club. Yeah. Like at its best, it was, it, was, it was really just a book club, but occasionally I would chime in with some like interesting tidbit about 19th century history or whatever. Yeah. More often, it was the congregants who were like, uh, like, um, our second or third class, we read Yentl by Isaac Bashevis Singer, which is mm. maybe my favorite short story of all time. And I was really eager to do it, but I didn't want to do it the first time because you have to have a dynamic. This, this goes into what you create uh, through these Zoom classes that you, that, you have to, that you have to maintain in the, same, in the same sort of way that you have to maintain a regular classroom, right? If these people had been meeting in person over a cup of tea or whiskey or whatever their pleasure is, um, we, would have to, we, we would have to have a group dynamic. And that's a little bit more difficult to do over Zoom, but it's possible. So I waited until we had the group dynamic and then I dropped the anthol. And what was really amazing about it is that it's of course a story about, let's say the 1890s or thereabouts, 
but it was written in the 1960s, right? It was, it's a, it's a product of the, um, I guess, two women's rights movements, right? Because it takes place at a time when uh, a lot of countries were um, modernizing, but it was written at a time when this country was modernizing in some other ways. Uh, anyway, so we got so many stories from the congregants about what it was like for them growing up. All of these uh, middle-aged and older women mm. who in some cases were among the first in their home synagogues to become bat mitzvah, right? And very often, of course, that means that they, that they became bat mitzvah in a way that was different from how their peers became bar mitzvah, right? The, the boys would go up to the, the same place where the rabbi and the cantor led the services from, and they would read from the same siddur uh, prayer book, and they would read from the same Torah, and it would be simple. Um, it, and the girls, when they started to do it, there were all these rules, there were all these added effects. And I just, I, I gotta say that it was a really amazing experience. It chafes me a little bit to think about how much you have to work overtime to like Lisa was saying, basically to justify your salary, right? In this, in this time of COVID, like people, people start circling their own wagons. They start thinking, where can I economize? Where can, where can we clip? Where can we um, cut back? And people like teachers and other service industry workers are the ones who suffer. Teachers a little bit less because teachers usually have a higher pay grade, mm -hmm. but those are the people who suffer. And yet, this podcast has always been about balancing those difficulties, those hardships, those economic realities against just the pure joy of sharing ideas that gets you into this situation in the first place. And so I do want to acknowledge that it was an amazing experience. I got to talk to people I never would have talked to. I got to, um, I got to have these basically, uh, at the, the kids book club, Lisa is being kind when she calls it, uh, a book club. We never had more than two people show up. Um, we we ostensibly had a roster of three or four, but basically two or three people would show up at any given time, and then one person would have an excuse. And by the end, it was just me and this one this one girl who was chugging along. And but I have to put a sidebar to that about the philosophy, my personal philosophy, and the philosophy of the Hebrew school, which is that. It, it doesn't matter how many people come to a program. As long as there is one person there, you make it as if you have a full class because yeah. it's about giving that person a full experience. And if you give, if you get one or two people come and you make it like, oh, well, nobody came today and let's like kind of brush it off. They're not going to come back. You didn't take advantage of the, I'm not saying Adam didn't, but I'm saying like, <laughs> wouldn't take advantage of that situation. So it, you know, all you need is whoever comes, do the full thing, have the full experience and enjoy it. And then um, it, it does connect to the Jewish value that if, if you save one person, it's as if you save the whole world. And so it connects to that. Yeah. And oh, wait, more, yeah. To the, wait, 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 more to the oh, point. Wait. I want to speak about Yentl. <laughs> but go uh, ahead, go on your Lisa, Lisa was telling yeah. me, I was getting demoralized during this process, right? It was, let's say, June, July, 
I was teaching these classes once a week and I was saying, oh my God, nobody's showing up. Mm -hmm. I feel so frustrated, blah, blah, blah. And Lisa was telling me this in medias res and saying, you've just got to keep going. And I, and I definitely needed to hear that. Mm. Um, and it ended up being great because the one person who shows up, it's not going to be one, you know, crappy person who's just there to, to, to like, to check a box. It's going to be one person who's, like, who's there because this is the thing she wants to be doing right now. And so your, your enthusiasm can, can sort of infect each other and can pass back and forth. And it's, it ends up being wonderful. Um, I was so crushed when that, when that, um, when those classes ended, when the, when those Yiddish uh, book clubs ended, because even though we had very few people in the one class and increasingly few people in the adult class, it was amazing. It really was. And it was an opportunity that I wouldn't have had otherwise, because otherwise people are going out and doing their things on a weeknight. They're having dinner with friends or they're having dinner with their family or whatever. And so one of the things that that I've sort of noticed this past year is that I've had a few opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And a lot of them really are because people say, people like Lisa say, well, why don't we try this? And those are in some ways the most powerful words in any language. I love that. Okay, now you wanna talk about- Okay, now can I vent about my love of Barbara Streisand? Thank you. Okay, because we didn't fucking watch the musical, we read the book. I know, but this is where Adam and I disagree. Like, it matters to do both in conversation. Oh, you know what else we read? We read um, oh, Isaac Rusheva's Singer's oh, no. negative review of the musical. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but you know that Fiddler on the Roof, I always talk about Fiddler on the Roof because it's a musical about tragedy and yeah. about pogroms. And I think it's important to recognize that what you were doing, Adam, and what Lisa, you're spearheading, right? in your administrative position is people are turning to art that is cathartic. So it matters right now that Fiddler on the Roof is one of the number one most listened to musicals right now. There's a reason, you know, there's a reason that Jewish cultural musicals are so pivotal and that Barbara Streisand headlined so many of these musicals, Funny Girl, Fanny Bryce, Yentl, that she, her catalog, I was just listening to her singing with Judy Garland. That was one of the first times that a Jewish woman would, was headlining in that kind of way. And, you know, and she's been a very visibly uh, Jewish cultural singer. All right, there's a whole history around that. But, um, you know, that's why I think, Adam, it's, like Lisa and you are talking about, only if there's if there's only one person or two people, three people, at least you're all sharing art together and you're expressing why it's so important for art and culture to be discussed right now because- Yeah, I think you're making a really good point actually that- Oh, thank you, Adam. I'm glad I have your validation. Oh, whatever. Um... <laughs> Like I'm some absentee father figure, come on. So no, I think you're making a really good point that um, when, we, when we 
uh, become magnetized by a work of art, we don't always know why. Mm -hmm. And we don't always necessarily appreciate why, right? Like someone like Barbara Streisand, I've, I mean, I enjoyed the musical, the musical version of Lentil, of Lentil, of Yentl. I enjoyed the musical version of, of Yentl, obviously much more than Isaac Bashevis Singer did. Um, and I never really thought about what might be the connections to a woman like Barbara Streisand trying to make it in her industry mm -hmm. um, in, a, in, another, in another generation. But now when I listen to a piece of music and when I, um, the, the pieces of music that I've been attracted to in the course of this pandemic, I do think I've started to question more why those pieces of music, right? And why those artists, I've been listening to, I mean, this is not unusual for me, but I've been listening to a lot of classical music. And particularly I've been listening to a lot of chamber music right which in the 19th century would have been music quite literally performed in your chamber it wasn't it wasn't a string quartet on a stage with a thousand listeners it was a string quartet in a living room with i don't know eight listeners hmm. and that's that's been my bread and butter in the last uh the last few months is these solo piano works these um trios quartets quintets and Obviously, we know that all of these musicians, well, a lot of these musicians, you know, died in their 30s. And it definitely, it's, it's definitely something I knew before, right? That's kind of the first thing you learn about Mozart is that he died at 35, Schubert died at 31, Mendelssohn died at 39, mm -hmm. uh, etc. Well, they but, learned about. <laughs> Oh, sure. Let's be clear. Sure, but, this isn't the typical but, childhood, but yes, yes. You know what? You know what? I'm feeling attacked. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's important, though, because you're explaining that you're trying to, even right now, everyone listening, I'm sure they'll start to turn to this chamber music to hear. Well, so so here's an example. One of one of one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, and I want this and I want this fact written on my tombstone. One of the greatest pieces of music ever written is the String Quintet by Franz Schubert. And I've listened to this piece ever since my grandmother introduced it to me probably 15, 20 years ago. Hmm. And it's never been far from my thoughts, but I've been listening to it a lot more lately. And the thing that I never really connected, this is one of my favorite pieces of music. It's one of my favorite composers. It's by a composer who died when he was only 31. Hmm but I never connected, he wrote it pretty close to the end, right? So he knew that he was sick. He didn't know that he was dying per se, but he knew that he was sick. And I do think that there's a certain amount of fear and anger in listening to a piece of, like in, in trying to come to terms with those uh, realities. And I also think that there's a certain amount of comfort in being with someone like Schubert, who is also trying to come to terms with those realities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think you've just made a really great manifesto piece of why we continue to use the arts as therapy. I mean, I hope so. We've gone really far afield. 
Yeah, but um, I think, well, Lisa, what have you turned to right now maybe to help you get through all of the jobs that you're a part of? Because I'm sure you're faced with the burnout energy that everyone is. Well, you know what? Honestly, being able to offer all the extra programs, and the last thing was that we added um, adult programs with, like, sometimes we had a social worker. Sometimes we just did, like, a wine and Zoom with the parents. <clears throat> That really gave, that was really what helped me through it was that, first of all, I still got to see everybody on the screen. So I felt like I still got to, you know, connect and, and chat with people. And I called everybody and, you know, that was really what it was for me was like seeing how I could be there for people, talking to people, adding programs, keeping in touch um, was like huge. But during it also, I went to work you know, and I saw people in person. Um, and so I kind of felt that I was lucky in that respect because I still had that balance. I still had where I was going out. I was going to work. I was, you know, in the same room with people and talking to them. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had that balance still, but really, um, it was being able to be there for other people and, and, you know, it's mutual. Like when I go to a staff meeting, one of these Zoom staff meetings that we did weekly, I was excited to go. I'm like, oh, I get to go. And, you know, to be able to, the, the team is just so eclectic, has such an eclectic background from ages to religious backgrounds to philosophies to just life experience. We have Jews by choice. We have like I said, people who aren't Jewish, you know, and it's just, it's so interesting to hear their feedback, where they're at, and it's kind of like lightened up everything for me. Yeah, and I'm just thinking for the show notes, if at the Hebrew school, if you have a list of resources you want to share with us, or maybe explaining the different Jewish holidays, because, you know, some of the listeners, they'll be like, Pura, uh, Purim, what's that? Or, you know, um is like the jewish halloween yeah. in the way that, people dress up right don't they usually yeah. yep in the aspect that you dress up but other than that is no connection i mean it's, it's not party the, isn't it's it not the day of the dead <laughs> but it, it celebrates queen esther right right it does, which is not in the torah it's in its own scroll and from feminists it's a big one because it's in a megillah and it's it has a female heroine so that's like really big Megillah. Megillah just means scroll. Okay. Yeah. It, it yeah, tends scroll. to refer to the shorter books of the Bible. The um, the idea being that something could be printed on a single printed, I mean, hand lettered. Yeah. But she's one of my favorites. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. She's a little bit sassy too because oh, yeah. She as as you know. Um, if you've read the story, right, she, she fasts for three days. And ironically, it doesn't say that she fasts and prays, right? They, 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 they cut that part out for, for literary reasons, right? It's the only book of the, of the Bible that doesn't have God's name in it. So she, uh, it says, in, it says in, the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Esther, it says that she fasts for three days and you expect that she's gonna go to the king and throw herself at, at his feet and then, and then God is going to work through her, and she's going to save the day, right? That's the expectation. But actually, she fasts for three days, and then she goes and th 
throws herself at the king's feet, and he says, what can I do to help you? And she says, you can come attend an intimate gathering of three people, you, me, and the prime minister, right? Yeah. And we're going to have lunch together. Now, she's, she's explicitly risking life and limb by going to see him. And yeah. so the fact that she's going to see him and inviting him to lunch is intriguing. And so he goes with his head full of thoughts, presumably. And then he asks her at the lunch, okay, what now? Mm. And she says, I want to invite you to another lunch, just the three of us, you, me, and the prime minister. And so he's at this point burning with curiosity. What could be, what could be so important that she's risking life and limb to invite him to lunch? What's so important about this lunch? And then things start resolving themselves. She, she finally breaks the news. Hmm. Um, and so it's this complete inversion. And there are other places where, where they play with this model, right? Where they, uh, there are other places in the Bible where they play with the idea that you, you pray to God and then God intervenes. There are other places where God does not intervene hmm. directly hmm. in biblical events. But this one is the most explicit. And it's the, it's the one in which we get like a new model for how to interact with the world. We're no longer in the mosaic world where you can just say to God, hey God, uh, as, as Robin Williams put it, God, I need a big thing. That's no, longer, that's no longer the model. Now you can say that, but you also have to live in the world. You also have to play the politics. You also have to present your, it, it's, it's, well, and she I don't want to say her people. I don't want to say it's show business, but it's it's like that. But she saves her people. She does. She yeah. wins. Yeah, the Jewish community. And I guess in that regard, it's really interesting. There's a certain performance aspect. Maybe this is going to sound. I hope this doesn't sound offensive to anyone listening. But that there's a certain. <laughs> I'm even thinking with Perum. We welcome your letters. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the way uh, uh, Purim is celebrated now, you don't fast for three days like Queen Esther. We do not, but we do fast for one. Okay. But like, that's really interesting because it's a certain acting that you take as the person who's celebrating the holiday. Yeah. You're trying to embody her life. Yes. That's, that's at the heart of all of the holidays, really. And I think that's a... I mean, that's part of maybe more orthodox um, Christian sects do. They, there is fasting um, in certain Christian holidays. I don't think the fasting happens a lot anymore, but um, <laughs> I, and I'm sure even it depends too on which branch of Judaism you're a part of. Like not everyone I know fasts for um, sure. Rosh Hashanah even. Um, uh, Yom Kippur. Or Yom Kippur, thank you. Sure. Rosh Hashanah is well, the new year. But yeah. um, that it really, it, it's so interesting though that literature and performance is really at the heart of these holidays. Yeah, that's true. And I wonder well, if there's a musical theater connection here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there, there, de there definitely is. There's an amazing documentary. Because every year we do a spiel. So really? every year, yeah. we kind of twist on a story that exists already and we make it into like a Purim theme of that 
So the temple does one. We actually have Kathy Toro who wrote for Sesame Street. She oh. works on forum spiels for us. Oh, right. I love yeah, that. So, yeah, every, every year we do put on a play. And that's, that's the origin of theater in Western culture is um, when the, like, the um, sort of Christians would do this. They would put on plays for Christmas and stuff like that. And then they would perform those plays for audiences throughout the year. Yeah. Um, well, that's and, like... and that developed into Western musical theater and yeah. Western non-musical theater and everything. Like last um, so night, we're, we're keeping that tradition alive. Yeah, like last night I even, so if, an, if anyone's looking for an interesting documentary on Broadway, on PBS, there's the, um, I forget what it's exactly called, but I'll put it in the show notes. It's about Jewish composers. Hmm. And um, it's a really good documentary. And last night I was turning back to The Wizard of Oz, which, you know, I always forget it's from 1939. I'm like, whoa. Wait, how do you forget that? Well, I don't forget about the Great Depression element to it, but it's... Oh, I see. I, I, I forget about just how the special effects always just astound me because, I don't know, there's something so magical to that movie. I mean, I know it was not an easy film to make, and I used to be obsessed with this um, nonfiction book on the making of The Wizard of Oz that my Nana had at her house. And my family, we're pretty obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. We're, we're, if you couldn't tell, we're a Broadway musical family. And um, I look though, and a lot of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, um, you know, speaks directly to not only Dorothy's struggle um, with her inadequacy in this small farm town in Kansas. Um, and she wants to, you know, be that city big dreamer type of person. But then eventually, you know, that gets taken up by the LGBTQ community as a way to get out of their oppression. And also it speaks to the Great Depression and thinking about a better life, right? And that's what Emerald City really is, is this alternative life. But then again, <laughs> there's a con man who runs it. So sounds a little Familiar. Uh, I, sometimes I think that the con man is a little more scary than the witch of the West, but- um, well, That's the era we're living in now. Yeah. yeah. And, but it makes sense that people grew up thinking a con man would save them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he actually is, a, um, in Kansas, the wizard plays the fortune teller. So it's like that carnival know. circus atmosphere yeah. Uh, theme. But yeah, I guess all of that's to say is how important returning to these nostalgic, there's a reason why some of these films and music um, pieces are so nostalgic for us. And they speak to universal themes, right? Um, what's come out of this? I can't wait to see. That's true. <laughs> I know people are writing up a storm right now, playwrights and composers. Well, some people are, some people are paralyzed. Well, that's true too. And I think, you know, however you need to get by right now and continue to thrive is important, you know, so Adam's going to turn to his chamber music and I'm going to blast that serious XM radio on Broadway channels. <laughs> the whole, well, there's only one Broadway channel, but I still blast it. Oh, that's right. Um, <laughs> poor, poor Andrew. I know, but um, I, 
Thank Th this you. is what this is what it really means to suffer in the pandemic is to have only one Broadway channel on Sirius XM radio. Yeah, but this is this is what they're convening all these. That press is conferences the about. yeah, that is heartache at its finest. <laughs> um, but I think it's important. Like all these programs you're talking about, Lisa, are they also recorded or are there ways that some of your students who, like you said, they might not be able to go they can see other programming that's um, virtual. That's a great question. They were all recorded, but we didn't have any request ever to like, oh, can you send us the video and we'll catch up with the class. But what was neat was that once the summer came, that was where Adam started to mention his decline in attendance. Even with the um, older folks, people were starting to go out into the world. And so yeah. we had to then, I, I actually started coming up with this thing that I started sharing with people. Um, I call it pivot, pivot, kit, COVID. Pivot, <gasps> pivot, COVID. Like, that's just how I feel. Like, pivot, pivot. <laughs> like, oh, okay, something else happened. So, um, so then we started to see an uh, increase in people going out and a decrease of their participation online. So we actually stopped the online programs and then we had in-person programs for the teens. We started to have like outdoor movie nights and they did all sorts of really cool things along those lines. And then I, I started the, okay, Hebrew school 2020-21. And I was anticipating maybe a 50-50 or a 40-60 split mm. for in-person and online students. We set up that there's an outdoor learning space. So all our classrooms are outside right now, which is amazing. And then we have online, an online section. When the kids go into their classrooms, they've been set up CDC like approved guidelines. Um, we also have one fourth of all our classrooms are windows. So I told the parents that even when we go inside, send layers, we're gonna have the heat on, but we're also gonna have the windows open. And we got a UV cleaner, we got two of them. So wow. it, they're cleaned with beach, bleach based, not beach, but that would be nice, bleach based products and a UV cleaner <laughs> afterwards. So a bleach beach based one would be the one that smells like the island <laughs> that my friend <laughs> obsessed with so we have that um to transition into but when i looked at the final sign up we had 95 percent signed up for in person because wow. um i guess you know we set up you know outdoor spaces we set up a protocol and a handbook that was put on our website and handed it out to the parents. Mm -hmm. And we followed a lot of guidelines and safety pro protocol, you know, uh, from start to, to end, you know, like we really covered our, our bases. Of course, we can always be better. And I'm sure there's always things that we, you know, can do, but it really worked out. And we even now have had family programs. We had in-person high holiday services, but you know, you have the RSVP, they're spaced out, you know, and, and yeah, we're at 95% is, is in-person and in-person programs, in-person learning, and the online segments are actually very small classrooms. Adam's class has three kids. Oh, that's so nice. That's yep. good personal. Yeah. 
but then we set up a different a different learning structure for them and it's great because they have their hour and you know i really don't want a class to go longer than an hour unless it's adam's because adam i just think is like really really interesting i've been keeping it to an hour damn it i've okay. been keeping it to an hour you know what, I haven't been to that one because it's during the actual mood hours right now, but I bet you that if I check the recording, they're like an hour and a half. <laughs> There's no recordings. Oh, you're, you're There's no recordings, the I burn the evidence. <laughs> I bet you, you know what it is, Adam is really interesting, you know, as a speaker, whereas not all teachers, so that's where you have to really look at the individuality and teaching methodology of your, your educators. Adam is somebody who can really hold the attention just by speaking to kids. Not of 10-year-olds on Zoom. Okay. Now, we, we've, we've found the limits to, my, to, to the people who are willing to listen to my anecdotes. So what? Okay. Uh, your head's down and you see them snore and you hear them snoring? Is that how you know? If only, no, 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 no. It's, no, they get restless. Yeah. Well, so, so this, the, this is a thing that, that Lisa and I have talked about back and forth right this, these things don't just happen in a vacuum and they don't just happen with you know minor adjustments mm. my my classroom style in the hebrew school was always a lot more discursive i run you know i have my 10 year olds but I, but it's basically like a lot more like what i what i'm used to which is you know college and grad school classes mm -hmm. right there's a lot more discussion a lot more um a lot more, uh, a little bit more lecturing, um, but a lot more, dis also a lot more discussion. Like one of the things I always prided myself on as a teacher pre-COVID is that I could have my plan for what I'm going to talk about today, right? It's, uh, it's Sunday morning, it's Hebrew school, I'm going to talk about Rosh Hashanah, and then I'm going to talk about these two or three other, we're going to have these two or three other sort of discussion activities, whatever. And then a student asks a really interesting question and that's what we spend the class talking about. That's called a teachable moment. You wanna take advantage of teachable moments where it's driven by the kids or the experience or the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I always prided myself on my ability to do that, to yeah. pivot, as you say. Um, see, I was pivoting before it was cool. <laughs> but anyway, so then when um, then when this this thing happened and we started having Zoom classes, you don't have the same you don't have the body language indicators, you don't have the eye contact. All of my tools went from sharp to dull in an, in a minute, right? Mm -hmm. And so I started. I I was the first few classes, I was still doing the same thing I was doing, but it was getting to be more and more lecture and less and less discussion. And so Lisa basically um, helped me to transition to having more videos, to having more activities and stuff like that, basically to being like more like the other teachers because that was a more flexible method. Yeah. And I hate it, but it's better than what I was doing because it works. And so most of my, so really my ideal is that I don't want a class to go over an hour. So 45 minutes to 60 minutes, I think is the most engagement that we can get from a kid from an yeah. a Zoom program. And so Adam, but so Adam teaches that and then he does one-on-one -on -one Hebrew with each of the kids. And that's huge for their, because yeah. you know, they do all need to start practicing their prayers. 
um, because they are now getting ready for their barn bat mitzvah when they yeah. add them. And is that the yeah. number one? Would you say that's? I know we don't like hierarchies, the three of us, but. Would you say that Hebrew school, the number one goal really is to be prepared for your bar or bar mitzvah? No, they all want to be rabbi and cantors. No, yeah. <laughs> no and, and uh, Andrew, it's, it's, it's integrated. It's like, it's like the, the it's like the, um, They're like we want to be Dr. Adam or we want to be the rabbi or the cantor. Oh God. They're like the um, bar is just the first stepping stone. Well, <laughs> When when you, when you take educational classes, right? They talk about the the doctrine of teaching to the test, right? But there's also the doctrine of testing to the teaching, mm -hmm. right? So so the 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 bar mitzvah thing is is kind of like a test, but it's it's a test in something that you're it's it's not it's not an it's not an artificial test, right? Yeah. It's it's you go up on the on the podium, and you read from the Torah and you say prayers, right? It, that's, what, that's what's expected of you as a Jewish person who's coming into your adulthood. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you have to do this artificial thing, it's you have to do this thing that is... There's more layers to that too. You know, they yes. do a bar bat project, which is they need to do some kind of social action project right. to build a better place. They also do a speech based on their Torah portion, but how is it relevant to them as a person? or what meaning did they pull from it? So that there's different layers of it from their experience, but ultimately they're becoming a Jewish adult, which I did a whole lesson on Sunday with the kids. And I was like, okay, well, let me ask you this. So becoming a Jewish adult, does that mean, you know, Madden, after you, cause um, I said, Madden, after you have your bar mitzvah, a week later, you go to the casino and you start uh, sit at a table and you say, I'm gonna play blackjack now. I said, and you say, I'm a Jewish adult, I can play blackjack, does that work? They're like, no. I go, okay. And I said, you know, another kid, um, Andrew, I said, Andrew, you know, the day after his bar mitzvah, he gets in the car, he's driving mm -hmm. around, the police pull him over. And he's like, I'm a Jewish adult, I can drive now. So it's like, <laughs> Jewish adult, the same thing as being, you know, so I went through what's, what does it mean to become a Jewish adult? And becoming a Jewish adult means that you're taking on like the commandments in the Torah, which means, doing Jewish rituals than being a good person, being your best self. And um, one of the things I wanted to add was that um, rabbis, has, like if you talk to many rabbis, they say that in Hebrew school or day school, they were troublemakers. Mm -hmm. So in my class, if I ever have either a very inquisitive, like, you know, kid who wants or gives a lot of great feedback, or if they cause a little bit of trouble, I tell them they're going to be a rabbi. <laughs> yeah, we, we did have one of the we did have one of those in my class last year where uh, simultaneously it, it was a real struggle. It was a real struggle for him to stay in the class and for us to keep him in the class. And also I think he might become a rabbi someday. <laughs> but like you're saying, you're really teaching them ethics and morality. 100%. Like, my dissertation is on how to um, add global awareness to bar and bat mitzvah curriculum. Wow. That's and that's huge. Like there's two, there's a, there's so many things I'm passionate about, about education and Jewish education, but multicultural Judaism, because yeah. it's a religion, not a race. Um, yeah. And, and just showing that there's so much intersectionality in a single person and being Jewish can be just one component and how you identify as being Jewish can be different. 
to yeah. each person. Like in our in our other talk, we talked about like there's some there's foodie Jews, you know, there's you know, <laughs> Orthodox Jews, there's Reformed hey, can you Jews. Can explain like what the foodie Jewish curriculum looks like? Well, <laughs> does it mean like I make blintzes in the morning? Or? Oh, like they're like I had a latke. I'm I celebrated Hanukkah and I'm Jewish. I had I had matzah bride on Passover. I'm you know so they really connect to like having the Jewish foods you know and that's that's huge. Like I um, you know we made matzah ball soup with the kids all the time. They loved it. I'm telling you they made the best matzah ball soup I've ever had each time. And so it's some people just connect through everybody connects in a different way. And mm -hmm. that's great. That's what's really important about being Jewish is just finding like how, you know, like how you like bring in Judaism into your everyday life and however you do that, that's great. You know, and that's up to you. You know, I tell yeah. the kids, you know, like they're, they come to Hebrew school cause they're brought to Hebrew school, you know, but <laughs> yeah. the main goal is, is that they like it. They have a good enough experience and they see where it can fit for them as an individual so that later on they're coming back. Yeah. And one of the great things the rabbi talks about is how we are seeing that our kids are becoming presidents of Hillel and they're going to the Chabad house and they're going to Hillel and they're taking Hebrew and, and, and they're, and now they're coming back and they're getting married and with the rabbi and they're having baby namings. And you know, there's, there's definitely um, some people who are marrying people who aren't Jewish and they and, but they, they're blending it together and they're making it work for their family, whatever that looks like. And every family's different. We have a lot of families as well who um, are, um, have multi, you know, cultural, uh, different backgrounds. They have different, different religions within their same family. Mm -hmm. And it's about honoring that. Yeah. Same sex families. And you're very open yep. about that, which I think is important for everyone listening. And yeah. I know those who do Jewish studies um, in their work, especially I know some sociologists who do Jewish studies. And a lot of their conversations right now are on interfaith marriage. Um, Jews of color really mm -hmm. is a big issue right now. I know, especially in the Northeast. Um, like, are you going to feel accepted in this synagogue or not? Yeah. Um, even like, I'll speak to Jewish allyship is important, I think. Um, Massively important. You know, and, even and that's one of the things that we we especially do, uh, right? More, uh, Lisa is from uh, a multi-religious family. A lot of a lot of our students are from multi-religious families. A lot of our students are from, uh, and and one of our teachers are from uh, queer family. Like, um, I don't know. I don't, it, it's complicated, but. Um, yeah. So we have, I mean, we, yeah, we, we try to have this, uh, yeah, I'm stumbling on words, but we're, we're, we try to have, we, we try to reflect the values yeah. that we're teaching, because otherwise, what are we doing? Right. And we, and nothing's taboo. So I remember on my interview there, and to me, I thought it was like such a strange question, because to me, that was like not even a problem. And I guess that they had had an experience with one of their principals in the past that, it became, it became an issue where a kid in a big group asked about Jesus. To me, that's not even insulting. I'm like, oh, you know, and we can talk about Jesus and like the connectivity. Like there, 
being in a Hebrew school and being in a Jewish space is supposed to be where you can be comfortable to ask about anything. Jesus yeah. isn't a bad word. Jesus is part of history. Jesus is very important to many religions. And that's great, you know, and that you should know about it. And you, what's so important as we see in the world today is not just about knowing being Jewish and being a woman. If I only knew what being a woman and being Jewish was about, then I couldn't understand the rest of the world. I need to know other religions. I need to know what what a male's perspective and experience could be in certain situations. I have to be more, I have to, being Jewish is, and what we're trying to teach in the school is empathy and understanding. Yeah, and I think, um... You know, any CCD teachers out there, please take note of what Lisa said. <laughs> this can happen. And I know there are some very progressive yeah. uh, Christian sects um, of teaching, um, especially Episcopalianism has more, well, women can serve um, in leadership roles. Um, yeah. And the big thing in Christianity is can women be priests? Um, and can there be same-sex uh, marriages performed. Um, that's usually what I look for if I'm going to look into this church. Um, yeah. but, but to I me, the, to me, the big thing is is what um, how how much are you representing people from other places, mm -hmm. people from people from historically colonized places, especially right. Uh, yeah. When when Lisa and I were were putting together this project of Jewish cooking around the world, right. Um, Everybody asked me, okay, so are you going to make like all of these delicious Eastern European Jewish things? And I said, no. He's going to make Indian food. <laughs> you, exactly. Are you going to make Israeli food? I said, no. What? You already know what that is. I have to teach you what a falafel is? Get out of here. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I made, I, uh, I made Indian food. I made uh, Moroccan food. Mm -hmm. And these are these are recipes that are close to my heart, but they're they're like things that a lot of other people are less aware of. Yeah, but there are Jewish people in Morocco. There are Jewish people in Morocco. And there are Jewish people in India. About two, the Moroccan Jewish community is about two thousand years old, yeah. and the Indian Jewish community is pretty close to two thousand years old, also, or or one of them is. Yeah, the other one came from Iraq in the nineteenth century. Yeah, so or, I'm like there's only two there's there's multiple ones i mean it's we're talking like tens of thousands of people in a population of over a billion so it's not you know it's not going to tip the scales of most elections but um yeah there's multiple jewish communities and they all came at different times and they all have different stories and some of them were part of the like the british allied elite that um that ruled the country and some of them were part of the underclass and there was even, unfortunately, uh, especially in the far south, there was even racism between the different Jewish communities. Even um, in Israel today, that's actually a big problem. And yeah, and it's something that we have to that we have to talk about, and that we have to yeah. uh, come to terms with, and wow. and call out, and so on. Yeah. That's that the ways that we reproduce these these colonialist uh, hierarchies. Yeah. Well, the Jewish people are a diaspora. Yes. Mostly. Mostly. But also, <laughs> mostly, that's true. I mean, well, we could get into, yeah, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> but um, No, but, no, but even, though, that, that's an important point, that pe even people in the land of Israel 
are supposed to continue acting as though they're in the diaspora. And part of what that means, I think, is not pretending that just because you are in the state of Israel and, and you have uh, Jewish governance in Israel for the first time since Gedalia 2000 years ago, that doesn't mean you've won. That doesn't mean that you have God on your side. You still have to, you still have to run your country according to certain standards. According to ethics. This, this is this is this is a this is a this is going to be a very long conversation. That no, I no, no. But I think where... it's also important because Adam and I have had these discussions before, and I think it's important, especially with the, you know, we're based in. Philly, New York, right? The Northeast, the tri-state area. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and the Philly community is actually mostly Sephardic Jewish. Well, the Gratz family was Sephardic. So from the Mediterranean, uh, Emma Lazarus was from a Sephardic family. Um, so the New Colossus, uh, Statue of Liberty. I mean, I'm saying that for the listeners, really. Um, but like even the Sephardic Jewish food, very different than Eastern European. Yeah, and if you say Sephardic Jewish, that's not just one thing. That's true. Like I could be that's... saying Spain, Italy, Egypt, mm-hmm. um, right? The Middle East. Well, no, the no, Middle I mean, East. Just, just keep naming countries and there's Jews there. China, you forgot China. Nobody's saying Sephardic Jews, right? Were you saying Sephardic? Well, I was saying so that, Sephardic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that's and, and that's one of, that's one of the things that 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 unfortunately gets gets passed down is this um is this Eurocentric uh view of I mean everything and it bleeds into Judaism, unfortunately. Yeah. But at the same time, like yeah, you mentioned China. I remember my roommates um in grad school when I was living on the campus who were from China. And I was talking about doing, looking into Jewish literature, and they're like, oh, yeah, there's this very historic Jewish community in such yeah. and such province. It's called Kaifeng, the Thank place you. in China that had. That's so important. Um, we don't have to spend a long time on this, but I know there's the, in sociology, they talk a lot about um, like dominant religion and minority religions and how does that shape the society and culture. And I mean, I think that it's important, Lisa, that so much of your education, and even Adam does these types of events, that they're, you're part of a community and a society, and that to hear how open and inclusive you are as a Hebrew school is really affirming. It's really um, uh, heartwarming is a good word maybe for it, because like you said, you have families who, like I'm sure there's some children who may not be bar mitzvahed or bar mitzvahed. And then, you know, I'm sure people have different opinions about that, but it doesn't seem like they're excommunicated. Like there is none of that. You know, one of the big things we say is that everybody's on their journey Mm -hmm. and we're just part of their journey. You know, even our Hebrew school is twice a week. I tell some families who can't do twice a week or, you know, what they're looking for is a little different of an experience. We can, we can make this work for you. You know, 
it's really about what they need. We're a concierge for them. You know, like we're, we're just here as part of their journey. However we can help. We're not, we're, we're, <laughs> thankfully, I'm so happy to be part of a temple that's like not money driven. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether they become members uh, or join the Hebrew school. What matters is that we're here for them, whatever that means, whether they're looking for the Hebrew school experience, whether they're looking for a place to go on high holidays, what, you know, everybody's looking for something different. And so how can we be part of that instead of saying, here, we built this temple with these programs and, and you have to come to them. Otherwise, you know, you're, you don't belong here. Or you're, there's a second career rabbi. His name is Rabbi Erwin Huberman and he's from Canada. And his first career was, he was a journalist. Oh, wow. But he also did a lot of really incredible work, like going into communities and figuring troubleshooting. There was like other components of what he did um, throughout his career. And so coming in, he was very passionate about Judaism. It was something like he had like an experience in Israel where then he decided he was going to go to rabbinical school and he went to AJR in the city. And he's actually the first AJR graduate because it's not affiliated with the conservative movement who has been hired by a conservative temple. So there okay. is the- Sorry, like, what's AJR, Lisa? You know, we'll take the time to look it up. All right. Uh, so, Academy for Jewish Religion. Academy. So they do have some other programs, like my rabbi did sign me up for rabbinical school. So this summer I started taking classes yeah. on top of that. So um, <laughs> on top How of that- How was that experience? It was neat. Um, I definitely chose the wrong class for my first experience. I took a class called Difficult Discussions, which I thought was like, oh, oh it's so great. My rabbi is like paying for me to take a class. It's once a week. So it's not like, you know, grats because it's all online. It's heavily written. You have to do a lot of writing to represent your discussions. This was like you kind of showed up and that was that component. And then you wrote a paper at the end. So I was like, oh, this is like, you know, great. It's like professional development, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I expected at all. And really, I think what for me to be inspired to go to rabbinical school, if I decide to go down that path would be something that's a Torah based class or a prayer based class, not difficult discussions, because they spent a lot of time talking from the perspective of a rabbi or a cantor having difficult discussions, like if somebody passes away, but not even that. They, it was much more like political. I felt like it was a lot of like the politics they deal with, which aren't the things that I necessarily deal with. So it- Was it, it like environmental crises or not necessarily that kind of difficult discussion? It, it honestly, no, it was just like, and then, you know, there was the, it just really, it wasn't the, you know, the best first class for me to take. Yeah. But I, I told the rabbi that, you know, right now I have a lot on my plate. And I think that goes to like, one of the things you guys wanted to talk about, which was balance. Yeah. Is learning when you've had enough or when you need, you need to say no, which a lot of people have a hard time saying no. You know, especially when it's like these great opportunities. I love going to school. So like to go to more school, like sign me up. But at a certain point, I have a threshold. Mm -hmm. So I told him that you know, for right now, I have to hold off on that because I really have to concentrate on my doctorate. Yes. And, um, but AJR is the school he went to and he, he's just so driven. Okay. So one of the big concepts that my rabbi drives home, I believe it was in his, his high holiday sermon two years ago is Jew Barris. Like we don't want anybody to feel Jew Barris so that you 
if you were to say the word mitzvah while having a discussion or while he's explaining something, whether in his online sermon or in person, he'd also say a good deed or a commandment in the Torah, or, oh, you should give tzedakah, charity, so that things are accessible so that people aren't like, what are they saying? Oh, I, and then a sense of feeling like you don't belong. And that's just like talking about verbiage. There's all the different levels, like where we just don't want anybody to come into the temple and feel like they're not Jewish enough or that, you know, it brings some kind of embarrassment to them. He's big on that. He's big on the philosophy or the attitude of yes, which is, you know, first let's just say yes and figure out how to make it work. Uh, he's also big on, um, oh, my favorite saying that he, that really sticks with me and is important because especially in times right now, uh, Andrew and I were talking about this the other night because we had like a whole discussion. I mean, I could talk to Adam and forever. Um, we were just talking about like, um, hold on. We were talking, we were, <laughs> now I just lost my train of thought. Um, we were talking about, um, oh, uh, Andrew and I were talking the other night about how conversations can become very heightened right now because a lot of people are dealing with so much stress and like unknown stress. Like people don't even know that they're on edge and things are bothering them just so much more. Like a simple thing like, uh, oh, I, I really like that. You like that? What? You know, like things just become very heated very quickly. <laughs> and so, you know, you see this and you don't know, you just don't know that so many people are at their boiling points and they're not able to handle things. And we're not necessarily seeing everybody's best self right now. And the rabbi says that he believes that everybody has a, a spark in them and everybody has their challenges. And I love that. I love that. Well, and this is just because I'm so curious about this question. Maybe it's not necessarily my journey, but... Is there ever an age that you're too old to be bar mitzvahed? No. No. Ah, I mean, okay. too young, yes. Our listeners. Oh, you, you could be too young. You can be too young, but even that, my rabbi actually found a teaching in the Talmud, which is um, an extension of the Torah, which is the only reason that you don't have the bar mitzvah before, technically, is 12 for a girl, 13 for a boy, but in our congregation, we just do 13 so that it's, you know, equal, um, is that it says that you don't want to bring embarrassment to the congregation. Huh. So it says like you wouldn't want to bring somebody who's too young up to do these really incredible acts and become a Jewish adult when all these other people are like, I'm grown, like, look how old I am. And, you know, like, you know, and they're up there becoming the bar mitzvah. So, so that you, it's not to bring embarrassment to the congregation, but ideally it's 12 for a girl, 13 for a boy. And what's really neat is like, I didn't have a formal bat mitzvah because I was Orthodox at the time. So I tell the kids all the time, I said, I actually had what you want. I only had a party and I didn't go up to uh, the Torah and read from the Torah, although I knew my Torah portion and I went to Jewish day school. So I went to school much longer than them and I spend a lot more time learning about being Jewish um, than they get to. But I I did. I just had a party because I was a girl. Now Listen, I could. Sorry, so this was because you were Orthodox. Like where you. Yeah, that, so I, you weren't having bar mitzvahs. Um, Orthodox, to this day, Orthodox Jews do not have girls. 
called up to anything. First of all, girls can't sing in front of men. It's one of the things that you can't do, especially once you become of age, which is 12. So, and you don't really have a part in the service. So you don't go up and read from the Torah. You don't go up and lead prayers in an Orthodox uh, synagogue. So at that time, my mom um, had moved from California to New York when I was an early, like pre-preteen and she became Orthodox. So I was Orthodox for a few years. And that was part of it. So I actually had what they want. They, I, you know, I had the party. And if I wanted to, like next week, I could have a bar, or um, I could, I, I could have a bar mitzvah if I changed genders. I, I could have my bar mitzvah, you know, next week. Um, and a lot of people do actually like older people who didn't have the opportunity. A lot of times you see women doing it because women like uh, Adam was talking about in his Yiddish class. There's a lot of people who at that time, women, even women who weren't Orthodox because a lot of it was still based on Orthodox models at that time, they also didn't have that opportunity. And some people have their second bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. That's so cool. And I guess too, if someone converts to Judaism, they would have, they could have their bar or bar mitzvah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I know that there's a certain, there's a lot of classes you take with a rabbi if you're interested in converting to Judaism. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cause I remember talking to a rabbi about that and I'm like, well, let me do my own self-discovery right now and see if I'm ready you know, to go in that traditional route. But yeah. uh, this is actually, this is actually something that's at the heart of Andrew's and my relationship. I was, you know, an, an old grad student by then. And um, this, this uh, Andrew comes up to me and has all these questions about Yiddish literature. Mm-hmm. And that was, if not our first conversation, it's, it's the first conversation I remember being like really involved and personal um beyond like hi welcome to grad school and then just turn away and go get a drink of water or whatever um yeah it was involved yeah. so that, that 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 was that was how we started yeah well and i think too that's why i'm so glad that we have you on lisa because just my own upbringing like being raised catholic but also being having family friends that are are Jewish and like my uncle, he's not my uncle, but I call him Uncle Scott. Um, He actually was supposed to be my godfather in the Catholic church, but he wasn't allowed to be because the Catholic church would not let a Jewish person be a godfather. I'm not sure where that stands right now. I don't have a lot of faith in the Catholic church. That's my own thing. I'll probably edit that out um, because that'll offend people. But um and my parents were really upset. So instead they chose my cousin who um, was maybe only 10 years, 15 years older than me, which <laughs> it's so interesting. You could have like this young, you could have a teen be your godfather, but you can't have an adult be your godfather because of a different religion. And I think that it taught me about um, why is there discrimination like this existing and why can't there be interfaith? conversations especially because i see it in my own personal life and i think it's so wonderful that the hebrew school and 
this type of more, I don't know if you would use the term progressive, but a type of more acceptance and openness in schooling, it just reflects the communities that these children are a part of. Like, mm -hmm. And I'm sure many of them, they go to public school and have different conversations. Oh, all of them do? Or private school. They go to, they go to some sort of... Sorry, go on. Okay. I'm going to go to the Quaker school, by the way. Oh, that's someone goes to a Quaker school? Yeah. Oh, that's really so cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of those friend schools in South yeah. Jersey. The friend school. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's a free promo for them. Um, but again, yeah, it's interesting because the Quaker faith, um, a lot of Jewish communities in the Northeast um, developed near Quaker communities. And it's also because the Quakers didn't, um, they were being persecuted by the um, Puritans um, because they are not, you know, they weren't as strict in their, their religion was different. I mean, I guess it's still Christian, but it's, they believe in a divine light. Kind of like when you're talking about a spark, it's a similar type of belief. I mean, I don't want to, I don't know a lot about Quaker religion, so I don't want to misspeak for them. Um, but yeah, I think it's so exciting to hear how much you talk with other public schools as well, because they're a part, um, like having that principal role, um, that he's also involved with the Hebrew school, and there's a lot of these back and forth conversations, and that that's really important to be part of communities. Right. Like you're not operating in your own bubble. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully I think everyone listening, this can provide the blueprint for, you know, how can we cross the aisle with those we disagree with or think we might disagree with, but we actually have more similarities. And, you know, that's why I think uh, stereotyping is uh an ill in society like you think that you might know someone who's different from you but you probably don't know who they actually are you know so that sounded like a psa <laughs> which oh. i'll probably edit <laughs> but well and that's the whole thing is that we we think that we look at somebody and we we know them right just by looking at them you know and we think that you know just based on like how they're dressed or what car they're driving or where they live and what town we think they we know their experience and we don't. Yeah, yeah, and um, I know I've talked to those who've grown up in, um, right, because especially in America, the majority of those in a community are probably Christian. Um, but I, again, that could change depending on the community. But when I speak to Adam, who grew up in Great Neck and the majority are Jewish, um, I always ask people who grow up in areas that have more of a Jewish population, you know, what was it like when you left that area and you realized, oh, like this is a minority religion in America? Like that, it, you kind of are in your own bubble, but it is a protected bubble. But I think we all, no matter who we are in life, we all, at one point we come to a place where we realize that there are different cultures, like no matter where that place is for you. And I don't know, I guess 
Maybe I'm advocating for integrating our cultures together in some way where you can respect people. Like you can, you can still have your authentic culture, but that doesn't mean you can't coexist. Yeah, having having points of contact is incredibly important. Yeah. My best friend is Dominican, and she celebrates all the Jewish holidays with me so much so that when we were in Egypt, she was like, "I'm basically Jewish," <laughs> you know. Like, I mean, she's not. She has her own religion, and she honors and you know is connected to her own religious, you know affiliation, but she does. She celebrates Sukkot when we sit in a hut outside, which is usually in October, and she's uh, come to Passover with me and had matzah and done the Seder, so she and had her four glasses of wine. <laughs> you, know, <so>. uh. <laughs> you know, the great thing is that there's Only a lot four. Of, What? Only four. <laughs> I didn't say the size of the cup. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Adam, I don't, you don't drink at all. What are you talking about? What do you... You don't know that. Or I don't see you drink. Maybe that's okay. Well, that's a different issue. Nobody has seen yeah. me do anything since March. So that's yeah. not that's not a lot of evidence to go on. He just drinks, he just eats a lot of lentil soup. That he does he drinks a lot of tea too. <laughs> Sorry, now we're going on to the let's nitpick Adam's eccentric eccentricity. Um yeah. but yeah, like you're saying, that's so interesting. Maybe we're back to I don't even know if Jewish allyship, if that's an actual term, but I We've talked about it, so now it is. Um, but like even, I guess I'm thinking of my Nana a lot because she passed away in March. And um, she grew up in West Oak Lane and it's near Gratz College. So I keep thinking of her experiences there, but she started at the end of her life only probably in the fall last year. She talked a lot about her childhood to me. Actually, it was December. Never mind. It was December. Um, and I'll remember it very vividly just because it was the last time I was in person with her. Um, we did have a nice phone call before she passed away. Um, but when she talked about her childhood, it was that kind of conversation where you knew when someone's at the end of their life, you want that type of resolution. And I had it with my family. So it was important. And she talked a lot about... Um, her neighbor, I think her name was Rose, um, and she went to a shiva that Rose had. And I'm like, you've never told, told me about this, Nana. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, we were invited over to the sit shiva, and I did with my mother. And she would always talk about the Jewish delis in the neighborhood. And I'm like, wait, I thought you were very Italian. And she's like, well, we kind of were. And... <laughs> So then I started to realize there was a lot, there's more history in the family that I, cause I thought about it, like, sure, maybe in a neighborhood in the 1930s, everyone would sit Shiva together, but I'm like, I don't know how open of a neighborhood this was. Um, like there, there was, it seems like there was a friendship bill, you know, and maybe it was over shared beliefs, but I thought it was just so interesting that um, these memories were being told and the importance of oral history, right? Like now I can write that down and carry it on in, um, as our family's history, but also why maybe there's such a curiosity that I have to Judaism. And, you know, I think it's also important when you develop a sense of who you are, but that, you know, who you are might change. Um, it's not like you're fixed and 
that you're open to hearing from others beliefs. Like, I think it's also, I want to learn more about um, the Muslim faith. And I think I want to learn more about their holidays because I don't know enough. And, you know, why education is so important just to be exposed to what's in the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that may remember be. Talking... Sorry, go on. Remember when uh, we were talking last time um, off the air, yes. we were saying how it would be great if people had different experiences and different jobs, right? Like mm -hmm. they were a janitor and they were, you know, a cook and they were in the service industry in retail, you know, so that they understood like all the complexities and all the stresses and ups and downs of each job. And also maybe to make people more well-rounded, wouldn't it be great if all people like spent a year kind of experiencing a different religion, you know, like, you know, doing their religion, but then also being aware of like the Muslim holidays that came up that year and spending them, you know, like to have, have a more of a glimpse of what other people are doing. Yeah. And to challenge yourself that, um, look, I think no matter what, this is my own personal philosophy, so you don't have to ascribe to it. Um, <laughs> but no matter what your spiritual belief, religious belief, I think, wouldn't it just be wonderful if everyone's belief is to better their community and to support each other in a kind and empathetic way and to care about their neighbor? Like, I think, and I always say, no matter how you get to that belief, like, you know, maybe it's through um, the Muslim faith, maybe it's through um, Hinduism, it's through Christianity, it's through Judaism, no matter how, I think as long as we all can arrive at some understanding that we have to help each other, that would be such a wonderful world that I want to live in and community. It's interesting you say the Hindu religion because there are Jewish people who feel very connected to Hinduism and they're called Jubus. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know that. Hindu. Really? Um, yeah. 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 yeah that well well so one of the one of the one of the kind of i don't want to speak for all of them i'm sorry but yeah. i know that some of them have one, I, I think one of the things that happened especially in the 1960s when we had our like our hippie movement and stuff like that is that people started being a lot more closely attuned to their own spirituality mm. and unfortunately they or or whatever they were not finding an answer to that need in their own religions. And so mm. they just went elsewhere. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that's the lesson is that people will, people will try to find what they need. And it's in some ways, it's your job to try to give it to them. They're going to find want their community to come back. Yeah, they will find their community, I think. And, but also I want to say Buddhism too. There's a lot of Buddhism and Jewish intersections. I mean, maybe this is more of the yoga there's a certain yoga and Jewish um, intersectionality that happens sometimes. But again, I think it just speaks to, like Adam, what you're saying. You try to find what will allow you to thrive. Um, and, you know, is your community listening to you? Are they listening to what people need? And I can say Lisa's listening to everything that, you know, your community's asking for. Um, 
Like, I'm sure if they say, we want more films that reflect, I don't know, Jewish culture, or we want to have a musical week, you'd be like, okay, I'm on that. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> then I go to my experts in that. It, what's great about having such a collective group, a team, is that whatever it is, there's somebody there that's like interested in it. You know, like yeah. if it's cooking, I go to Adam, you know, Yiddish literature, you know, history, you know, but then we have like such, we have such a good presence for theater. You, oh, you know who um, Andrew would love is Hannah, Hannah and Amy. Yeah. They're both theater people and they love, love um, doing anything that has to do with that. So we, we're very lucky in that way. Or if we don't have it within our team, we have a lot of congregants, you know, mm. that love to help out in the Hebrew school and be part of it. Yeah. But yeah, whatever, you know, whatever it is, we want to, we want to integrate it and be part of it. Yeah. You, uh, something very interesting that our rabbi also did and the uh, cantor at my temple, Cantor Gustavo is, uh, was it a couple, it was a couple of years ago now they did a Martin Luther King and Frank walk with oh, wow. the, the black Methodist church in our neighborhood and oh, that was wonderful. like mm -hmm. that's important and i think isn't the the hebrew schools near uh, is it called the nasa county intolerance museum yes yes the holocaust museum mm -hmm. okay so we have a lot of people from there that are part of our our temple so they've okay. done a lot of work with us uh what was it uh, we were in i had it in the herald for our area what I did was three years ago, I had different volunteers come in and take on the role of different people from the Holocaust. Yeah. And then the kids went over and they spoke for a while about, you know, as that person. Mm. And then they asked them questions and we made it like a variety, like an art, an artist and in, in their artwork mm. and music and a soldier who came in and did the relieving you know, and it was like, so that they learned all the different types of experiences that surrounded the Holocaust. Yeah. Well, and they interviewed them. It's in, that's intense, but also I think it speaks to experiential learning, like why it's important to um, do movement to learn and hear voices from that time. Um, what an amazing lesson. I mean, and we have real Holocaust survivors there as well. Wow. You know, there is, you know, there there are different, you know, beliefs. Some people don't believe that you should reenact a character from the Holocaust. You know, so that was like the iffy area. But I felt very passionate about the program because I'd seen something years ago on um, that it was like, what if instead of having a library, we had people? You know, and like there was a place where you just went and spoke to the different people. Yeah. about their experiences like a book and I was like I wanted to make that somehow a program and I thought that fit really well with like a holocaust program yeah. so that it was more interactive because for them to just watch not just but for them to watch a movie or watch many speakers you know on a video or you know I wanted to bring it more to life where they could also ask questions yeah well living history I think is really important um, mm -hmm. for learning. And I'll always remember, right? I'll remember 2020, not starting mm -hmm. off with me having just 
the lockdown had happened right after I came back from Salem, Massachusetts and Boston for a conference, but I had spent a long day in Salem. And for some reason, I just wanted to spend a lot of time in the different locations there in museums. And I remember that the tour guides, cause you know, I'm very inquisitive. So I kept asking, well, there was, there's a lot of the tourism fanfare of like, oh, look at the witches. But when you get to the heart of the Salem history, a lot of it is a community under strife and pandemic. It happened during a pandemic, the witch trials, not coincidentally, and a famine. So people were psychologically under duress. And, wow. um, it seemed I think like- we had a pandemic during that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, happening well i think it was cases of tuberculosis but it, it could be it could have been a different disease um but a lot of historians they do think it was a targeted attacks to those who were either under a property dispute is very probable so they could gain their property so why not accuse them of witchcraft and get them out of the way uh which is awful and a lot of those who were accused of witchcraft were also independent women who were making their way in the community on their own. So another easy target. But I thought it was a really, now that I look back, I'm really glad I spent time having those conversations because I feel like it's actually helped me through this because, you know, we're under a time right now where people are really trying to think of how to coexist, but also that we should not be trying to find scapegoats for our problems. And I think mm -hmm. if anything you learn in Salem, it's this is the issue of when people try to find someone to blame and it doesn't end well for the community. Um, yeah, but I think also what you just did with that um, Holocaust um, teaching, the, the um, unit that you were doing, um, speaks to why it's so important to hear different perspectives, right? Like there is no one story. There's multiple stories here. Um, yeah, but I just think about those who gave you some pushback. I think there's always gonna be some pushback when you do an innovative lesson that, you know, it's going to cause uh, difficulty. And I think those difficult well, we're back to difficult discussions. To me, that's a difficult discussion, but you were able to figure it out, how to mediate it. And, you know, you didn't just like throw them. Right. Here's Schindler's <laughs> List, watch it by yourself. Right. And right. I right. think for us is outcomes, you know, like what is our outcome? And, you know, and yeah, honestly, it's one of the programs that the kids remember. It sticks in their mind because they, you know, and look, honestly, it's always such an honor to have any Holocaust speaker come and speak about their experience and for the kids to be able to ask them questions. And I do tell them they're the last generation that will be able to speak directly to a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I see, I mean, I don't want to spend, because I know we're wrapping up soon, but I, when I do see continuing news of I forget the percentage that has been reported, but how many um, youth don't know about the Holocaust in America. I am not only concerned about our education system, because I am, but <laughs> I 
I just can't fathom how these conversations aren't happening. And it must be that there's just been a, um, well, there's no engagement with Jewish cultural centers or like why it's so important to have these back and forth conversations from your communities. Because um, I know like, at least in middle school, we spent a very long, like, three-month, four-month unit on the Holocaust reading. I mean, I do remember watching Schindler's List. I think I was in seventh grade. Um, and, wow. yeah. Um, and we read this book that will always... Oh, we read Night um, by Ellie Weissel. Yeah, I could um, read too. Yeah, so and... Cool. Yeah, but the teacher, you know, she was very prepared like had, we had a lot of discussions about it and it wasn't just haphazard, right? It's, there's a way to have these conversations. It's like, if you're going to teach, um, and I think you should, um, about the slave system in America and, um, you know, the different elements to it um, in the 1800s, but you could even do a lot with the 1700s and earlier, um, you know, there's, there has to be conversations about how you're going to be teaching. And I think Lisa, we might have done this when Adam had left the conversation, but we talked about LGBTQ history and uh, how that's been passed in New Jersey. I know they now have a part of their curriculum. I think it was four states that added it as their curriculum. Mm -hmm. But the, the part is that the, it takes about 10 years for a new curriculum to come out. And so LGBT history and 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 what's and the movement is moving so quickly and progressively. So if you have this history but you don't have anybody in the school who actually has the knowledge of what's happening and can implement more current, you know, events and happenings and experiences, then it becomes antiquated in 10 years. And that was one of the downsides. But the upside is that yes, it's great that it's being integrated as part of our history, which is super important. Yeah. And then will you, I think the, and another upside is because it's now on that state's radar, maybe, yeah. and I've seen it, there's more parents now who are saying to their school districts, because parents have a lot of say in their, the children's schooling, right? And it matters what kind of school. <laughs> yes, they in. do. <laughs> yeah. And if the parents say, you know, we really want an LGBTQ text taught to our students in high school, that school district is going to find a teacher who will teach that text. Mm -hmm. So it matters. It matters for it to be part of the conversation. So, and I think it's exactly what you respond to with your, the parents of your students. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm sure if they want an LGBTQ Jewish text, call me by your name's good. <laughs> Just putting it out there. Um, that actually, you know, a lot of the Torah has um, all of these components, like, yeah. It points to one of the main leaders um, being possibly having like special needs and mm -hmm. um, Moses had a speech impediment. And there's definitely an undertone that's in the Torah about LGBT and that experience. So we actually are able to use the Torah and still talk about these experiences in our Purim play this last year, um, we, which is like kind of a, twist that the spiel off of um off of the story we had it that 
um, Vashti, who's like the queen that um, kind of gets banished in the beginning. And we saw her as like the feminist because she didn't want to dance in front of the king. And so then he's like, get out of here, you know, because it looks as though his wife's not obeying him. But we made feel about how like they're all in high school and it's like the before story. And so Haman's trying to ask girls out to the dance or whatever and like why people are mad at and why Haman is mad at, at different people. And so he's like, I asked Vashti to the dance and she said, no. She's like, well, what if I wanted to go with someone else? What if I wanted to go with a, a girl? Mm-hmm. You know, so like we add those components into it. She's like, I want to go with a girl to the dance. I didn't want to go with you to the dance. Yeah. So it's interesting, like we, like we, we added like these different things so that they're, they're part of, you know, what yeah. we, who we are, you know? Yeah. And I think what's so important is you have such a supportive community, which is the recipe you need. Like, yeah, you might have some pushback and that happens with public schooling. I mean, are you going to now there's always a few parents who try to challenge the handmaid's tale or they'll challenge some text. They might even try to challenge a Shakespeare play, um, depending on how they view it. But again, there's always going to be a few who are not comfortable, but if the majority say, well, we want this as our uh, curriculum to respond to what our children are going through in life, right, and challenges they face, then it really matters that the um, students have a platform to discuss, you know, feminist issues, LGBTQ issues, racial justice, um, disability studies, all of those components. Um, so I'm excited. I feel like I want to be a student now at the Hebrew School. I'm like, <laughs> sign me up. You should, you should come along. Andrew, I'm just so curious as an educator, um, like, where would you see, like, what would your visions be as far as LGBT and, and you know, starting young and it being part of, more a part of, like, education, the educational system? Like, where would you see that going? Oh, I like, I like that flipped question. Um, well, I would say I would start with what children are mostly exposed to, which is the arts. So it should come in uh, television programming. Like I always remember, um, well, Sesame Street, I think has done a really good job with, um, LGBTQ issues, um, and racial justice issues. Um, I I remember they just did a lot with, um, talking about Black Lives Matter, um, and doing it in a way that would educate children instead of like the parents trying to have the children watch CNN. You know what I mean? Like that's, you can't always, you don't always know. And some parents, they're uncomfortable having these conversations with their children. Um, they don't know how to approach it. But I think if you can approach it saying, especially with LGBTQ material, um, you know, I would take, there's a lot of children's books that have just been written about same-sex families. And that's a good starting place. Point. Like, okay, on Friday night, we'll read this children's book um, and we'll have a discussion about it. Um, there's been drag queen uh, children's reading hours at libraries. I know they did that. They've done that in some on some Long Island libraries. They've done it. Um, and 
the children who go, they really respond well. I mean, who wouldn't love to meet a drag queen and see that performance element? I mean, it's... A lot of people during the pandemic were telling me they were doing the drag queen bingo. Oh, yeah. I didn't know, but I heard about it. Yeah, we were actually going to maybe do one for one of our staff meetings, but we didn't end up getting a chance to. Yeah, yeah. But it's, especially in terms of uh, public schooling, and I'm sure they can, they do it in private school as as well, but I can't speak to it. Um, It's just having a really vibrant um, LGBTQ club for the students. So like in high school, we had a very, very well-funded LGBTQ club where we actually and I came from a very big district, so we had more funds for it. Um, but we would have parties with other high schools and their LGBTQ clubs and mixers. Um, and we would have reading discussions and discussions about movies um, that were had just come out. Um, so I think, you know, if there's opportunity for these clubs to exist, then students will be seen. So I think, like you're doing, Lisa, you're listening to what the community needs. And that's the first step, is mm-hmm. instead of thinking you know all the answers, that as any educator, I'm very concerned when someone thinks they know how to teach exactly, and they're not gonna change their methods. That, I think you have to be a flexible as an educator. Like if you're not flexible, then you're doing something wrong. One of the things we integrated actually was two things just for the bar mitzvah component was that we got a gender neutral certificate because we had one that was a bar and one was a bot. So one's a girl and one's a boy, but we got a gender neutral one. And I thought that that was really important for us to have as an option. And then also I was, it was funny, I was talking to the kids the other day and just because I'm going through the whole process of what they'll do as a bar and bat mitzvah. And I said, okay, these are the things you get. I go, and so typically the girls get Shabbat candles and the boys get kishkaf. And they're like, oh, I go, look, honestly, if you have a different preference and you're a boy and you want the candles or vice versa, as like, whatever you guys feel connected to, just make sure you tell, tell your parents to have them give you that item. Like, you know, it, it actually is interesting that we do that. It, I think now that I'm talking about right now, I think it should be a choice. I don't think it should be like that the girls get X and the boys get Y. It should just be like, do you, does your child want the Kiddush cup or the, the Shabbat candlesticks? Mm-hmm. Now that I'm talking about that. Yeah, well, and I'm thinking too, this is a great middle school. Um, I'll send, maybe, this is probably something I'll edit out, but I'll send it to you, Lisa. It's uh, joining us and for listening. Yeah. Oh. So... We are going to end the segment and um, all the information we describe are in our notes. Uh, So remember you can continue to leave us voice messages, please. We like voice messages or send an email uh, to um, andrew.rimby at stonybrook.edu and we'll get back to you and continue this growing community of the ivory tower boiler room, which, you know, we've now, made into multiple um, uh, spider webs of community.
<laughs> yeah. Okay. And bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Take care.